Okay, the youth can be dismissed for Sunday school. The rest of us, go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 4. If uh, you don't have a Bible, there should be one on a chair somewhere, maybe to your left or right, in front of you or behind you. Romans chapter 4. We're in a verse-by-verse study through the book. If you haven't been with us, welcome. Those of you, especially those of you who are newer, good to have you. Great to have you gather with us for worship. And again, we're in a verse-by-verse study through Romans. We started a while back in Romans 1.1 and are just trying to take it one section at a time. Romans is uh, the book that the church, many of the church have considered over the centuries probably the most important book of the Bible if you had to choose one. Well, a recent uh, survey I was reading found that half of U.S. adults affirm the statement as follows. A person who is generally good or does enough good things for others will earn a place in heaven. And I suppose that statistic isn't super surprising. There's a sense in which from the world's perspective that, you know, I mean, it's hard to believe from the, again, the world's perspective, it's hard to believe that our works wouldn't earn us a spot in heaven. When we operate by sight, as we do in the world, as, or as if humans are ultimate, uh, we're at the center. It seems like it would make sense. In the world, you work hard, you get ahead. That's even in Proverbs. But from God's perspective, of course, this is not true. And this is what Romans has been hammering down over and over. And it seems like it's becoming, if you've been with us, it might seem a little repetitive. We'll talk about why, uh, why the, the, the scriptures are doing that. But our works can't save us. It's the bottom line. That's God's message for the world. It's so hard to pry our hands uh, by our human nature off of that message, but God's message for the world is the good news that though our works can't save, our religious effort can't save, our moral exertion can't squeeze us into heaven, faith in Christ does. Faith alone, in Christ alone, as the reformers put it, they put that, the solas, you may have heard of the five solas. Sola scriptura, the Bible alone, scripture alone. Sola fide, faith alone, those Qualifiers are super important, what it says and what it does not say. Faith alone. And it's humbling to think about that our works cannot save. That's a, that's a lowering, a humbling idea. You mean if I do X amount of good stuff, that's not going to ramp me into heaven? It's exactly what God says. But that's actually super good news if we can be convinced of that and start to come to terms with our nature, judged by God's perspective, because when we're seeing through eyes of truth, it's like, oh yeah, (laughs) I might have done some good works, but no amount of works is going to match God's standard. And so this is... This is, again, the topic of, the, of this morning's passage, the next passage in Romans. Again, if you've been with us, I assure you we're not preaching the same passage week after week. I promise you I'm not doing that. We're going forward. Paul seems somewhat repetitive. Paul, the, the human instrument through which God brought this excellent book. And you might be asking, Paul, haven't we studied this already? That salvation or that, that very, very important Theological term justification is by faith alone and not Christ, yes, but good teaching often includes repetition and good teaching doesn't just say the same thing over again in the same way. Those of you who have or are raising kids, you understand that. It's like, how can I say this in a different way? Or if you're a teacher, how can I explain this maybe from a different angle? That good teaching repeats things, but maybe with a a different angle, different words. And what's happening here in Romans is what Paul explained in verse 21 to the end of chapter 3. He explained like the technicalities of justification by faith alone. Now in 
in Romans 4, he's illustrating it. So one way, just kind of big picture to see Romans 3, again, that big turning point, 321 to the end of chapter 3 is justification explained. Romans chapter 4, justification illustrated. Explained and then illustrated. Again, that's great teaching. And the text is going to get into a few reasons why salvation by works is impossible. Some reasons we haven't really looked at yet. So while there'll be some repetition, a lot of it is, is new. So with that, follow along as I read. I'm going to get a little uh, momentum here, and I'll start in verse 7 of Romans 4. Verse 7 of Romans 4, and then I'll read through verse 17. Romans chapter 4, verse 7 through 17. God's inspired, inerrant, and sufficient word reads, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Therefore, verse 9, is this blessing on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be counted to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also who, uh, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his seed that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith has been made empty and the promise has been abolished. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no trespass. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be according to grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it's written, verse 17, a father of many nations have made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. This is the reading of God's word. So a a little reminder of what's going on here in the book of Romans, if you haven't been with us. This first section through chapter 4 is is really doing, through chapter 5, I should say, is doing two things in the book of Romans, okay? Number one, it is convincing us, look, you, the human race, all need Jesus and you need him badly. You need him badly. Whether you come from a totally irreligious background, grew up with no sort of professed formal religion, just lived in total licentiousness as you got older, whatever, or you did grow up in a formal religious background, you were outwardly moral, whatever it might, you didn't you didn't live a, you don't have a colorful testimony. Whatever it might be, Romans 118 to the end of chapter two is saying, look, you all need Jesus badly because God's standard to get into heaven is total perfection in thought, word, nature, indeed. That's what's happening. And then from chapter, uh, chapter three, verse 21, again, to uh, through chapter five, there's great news. God has provided the righteousness we lack in the person and the work of the Jesus of the Bible. In his life, that he is the only one that ever lived up to the standard. His death, which, which pays for the penalty to remove the condemnation that is due us and everyone who has not lived up to the perfection of God's law. And his resurrection, which vindicates all the claims of Christ that he is God, the Savior, the mediator for humanity. And the thesis of the book, just turn back to Romans 1 really quick. Romans chapter 1. 
the thesis of the book is sort of stated at the beginning in verse 16 and 17. Paul is like a, just a, a ninja arguer here. Not arguer like he wants to have, he has a combative spirit, though some may have accused him that. But in presenting you know, a, an idea and then proving it's true and going through the technicalities of it to show it. Romans is a very technical book. This section that we're studying in chapter 4 this morning is no exception. Romans 1.16, he kind of gives a thesis. He says this, this statement. These are like the twin pillars through which you enter Romans. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Remember the gospel, that word gospel means good news. The good news of Christ's death and resurrection in her place for our sins. I'm not ashamed of it. Why aren't you, Paul? For it's the power of God for salvation. Salvation to meet our greatest need. To everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. Or the Greek, sometimes that word is used, Gentile, synonymously, non-Jews. And then verse 17, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it's written, but the righteous will live by faith. So that's the thesis there of the book that Paul is proving throughout, and especially in verses 13 to 17 this morning. That the righteousness that we need, or right standing, right? Enough rightness, enough good works, righteousness to get to heaven. It's from faith to faith. That's, em- that's emphasizing that it's faith, faith, faith. Because the righteous, and he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous will live by faith. Back to Romans 4. So that's that's big idea, and then this semi-technical section of verse 13 to 17 in Romans 4 is setting out to illustrate that through Abraham. Now, why why picking up on Abraham here? Why why do that? So part of whom the demographic to which this part of the book is originally addressed in the first century were very, very religious Israelites, those in first century Judaism, who were sort of swimming and confused by the error that, okay, my works can launch me into heaven. And they, they, they held Abraham in very high esteem, right? He is the, the father, the ethnic, the ethnic father of Israelites. From him and Sarah, the nation came. And there's a lot of stuff written about him in Genesis that he's held high. Um, so he, he picks up Abraham and says, okay, you're still having trouble being convinced that justification, your greatest need as a human being, is not by your effort and by your religious exertion. It's not by that. And to sympathize with them for a minute, you know, it's hard to part with old ways, isn't it? If you've grown up always believing something, always having been taught something, which many of these in the first century Judaism, even now today, as we'll talk about later in the sermon, have, it's hard to kind of release that. And so Paul is kind of very, a very wise move. He's saying, you guys hold on to Abraham. You think, you know, he's kind of like the, your moral hero that you're sort of getting a pass into heaven because you're in his ethnicity and because you hold on to him and hold highly. Let me actually help correct what is the real situation with Abraham. And last week in verses 9 to 12, we saw that he, he, he points out this thing to a 21st century Western audience might seem very weird, circumcision, but that was a religious rite or religious ritual or a religious ceremony that was very important to them in that day because it was, it was commanded in Genesis 17 to Abraham like, this is a sign. You saw there uh, in verse 11, it was a sign and it was a seal of righteousness. It didn't save. You didn't get to heaven by that. But it was a symbol of something greater of that I have put my faith in the Lord for forgiveness. At least that's what it was intended to be. But for them, it came to be, well, this is part of what I do to get into heaven because it's a religious ceremony. And the modern day equivalent would be something like baptism, or another ceremony. Well, I've been baptized, so I'm going to heaven. No, not at all. That's what verse 9 to 12 showed us last week. And then verse 13 to 17, Paul is saying, okay, well, let's talk about the works of Abraham and to illustrate to you that salvation is not by works. Okay? 
That's what's happening here. And again, if you haven't been with us, and maybe if this term justification is new, again, it addresses the most important need of the human race. Justification in the original Greek is a law term that meant to not gradually infuse or gradually impart or give, but instantly declare the sinner in right standing with God, irreversible, permanent right standing with God, not on the basis of your works, but on the basis of Jesus' life, his righteousness, his substitutionary atoning death on the cross, and his resurrection. That is all accessed by faith. Justification by faith alone. That's our greatest need, okay? So, from the text, we're going to see four points. Four points to refute salvation by works. Four points to refute the idea of salvation by works. Or four refutations of salvation by works. Number one is this. Very simply, number one, the error of works-based righteousness. The error of works-based righteousness exposed. This will be found in verse 13. The error of works-based righteousness exposed. And works-based righteousness, if you've ever heard that phrase, it just means a righteousness or a right standing with God, reconciliation in God's salvation, getting into heaven, that is based upon works. The error of works-based righteousness exposed. Look at verse 13. Paul sort of, in the same vein as the error of salvation by religious ceremony, Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham or to his seed that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So again, the text gets into some semi-technical stuff here as it illustrates salvation by faith in the life of Abraham. The promise, here's what's happening. So the promise to Abraham. Um, Very wise of Paul, again, to hold up Abraham and to... Bring him forth as an illustration. He's basically saying, okay, we're gonna, I'm going to talk in your terms now to the religious Jews who thought you know, he got into heaven by his works. It's hard to divorce ourselves from thoughts we've always had, beliefs we've always had. So the promise to Abraham, what promise is he talking about? The text is referring to the promise given to Abraham, which was the gospel in seed form. In other words, not fully grown up and revealed yet. In Genesis 12, we don't have time to go there. We've looked at that a few times in our series. You can jot that down. Genesis 12, also in Genesis 18, 18, God promises to Abraham about 2100-ish BC. Abraham, who was from Chaldea, he was like a moon worshiper, right? He says, I'm going to do something remarkable through you. I'm going to bring about this ethnic nation, Israelites, I'm going to give you some land. Those who curse you, I'll curse. Those who bless you, I'll bless. And also, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And that blessing is Christ. Uh, the promise teaches, among other things, in seed form. Again, Abraham in 2100 BC and those thereafter up until Christ didn't quite realize what are going to be all the details. It's in seed form or shadow form. We have it now in 3D, especially with the New Testament. The promise teaches, among other things, okay, God's going to create this nation, and through this nation, this, this nation, nation will be a vehicle through which God will come in human form, Jesus, be Israelite, and provide salvation. Now, turn to Galatians 3.16. Keep your finger there in Romans 4. Galatians 3.16, just a few books ahead. This fleshes, Paul, again, he was a, He was an Israelite, a Jew, very well studied. He was a Pharisee before he came to faith in Christ. And he says this in in verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. So big idea here. 
The promise of salvation is received through Christ. Christ is the singular seed, Galatians 3.16, through whom the promise, you see that term promise a lot in Romans 4, through whom the promise, the gospel, in other words, comes. Okay? The promise again. One day, through the Israelite nation, Christ is going to come. There's more, though. There's this interesting phrase, and that he would be heir of the world, verse 13 of Romans 4. For the promise to Abraham or to his seed that he would be heir of the world was not through the law. Heir of the world. What is this talking about? How, what, what, what does it mean that Abraham is heir of the world? So this doesn't mean that, you know, Abraham alone is like the owner and inherited earth and he gets it and we kind of are on his property totally. The idea is looking at what all is involved in salvation that is brought through this seed that Paul mentions in Galatians 3.16, through Christ, ultimately what is involved. Well, part of the, so the salvation blessings that we get through Christ, who came through Abraham, are spiritual and they are physical. Okay? Salvation is spiritual and physical. It is spiritual, and Paul mentions this in Ephesians 1. Three, he says, blessed be our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Then he goes on to talk about how God has chosen us. He set his love on us. We have, we have forgiveness. We have assurance of salvation as we sang about in our, in our last song uh, through the Holy Spirit who gives us the assurance of your gods. That's spiritual. Justification, that is spiritual. But there is also a physical part of salvation. And, you know, God started out creating a physical world. There is something that we're going to receive later in salvation, and that's real bodies, those who put their faith in Christ, resurrected, as are cursed now, on a resurrected earth as well. Jesus said, you may, you may recall in the Sermon on the Mount, he said in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. That's not talking about right now. No Christian owns the earth, right? This earth is cursed. Jesus is looking toward and at that physical part of salvation. Romans, not Romans, excuse me. I almost said Romans 20. Uh, Revelation 20 gets into this in a little bit of detail. Namely, the millennial kingdom. Believers, including ethnic Jews who were saved prior to Christ, and all believers now, then we will be resurrected and enjoy an upgraded earth, upgraded bodies that can never perish. That's the physical part of salvation. Theologians have often talked about salvation as already and not yet. Already and not yet. The already is the spiritual side. We, by faith in Christ, are already forgiven. We are already dwelt with the Spirit. We are already in union with Christ. We are already justified. But not yet, we do not yet have regenerated, brand new, resurrected, imperishable bodies. And if you're not convinced of that yet, wait till you turn 40. And the earth is not yet upgraded and fixed. It's still cursed, right? Everybody understands this. So the, there is the already part of salvation, spiritual, the not yet part of salvation, physical, more detail of that, not only Re, uh, Rome, excuse me, Revelation 20, but 21 and 22 as well. This is something of the idea of inheriting the earth that, again, Jesus picked up on in the Sermon on the Mount. Much more to it than that, but that's the, the big idea. Now, more to the point, end of verse 13 in, in Romans 4, this is not received... Through the law. Paul is just exposing this and just kind of hinting those who are stuck in that idea that I can get to heaven and receive all these, the already and the not yet blessing salvation by my efforts. It's not through the law. Not through the law. That's the technical term that the first century religious person in Judaism would understand is through obeying God's law. Through trying hard to look at me how I can keep the commands and be a pretty good person. It's not through that. But, end of verse 13, 
through the righteousness of faith. And as we read that phrase at the end of verse 13, the righteousness of faith, Paul wants us to remember that thesis statement in Romans 1.17, that the righteous shall live by faith. That for you to be right with God and to have a righteousness that satisfies his requirements of the law, it is going to only and ever be faith. That was the case in the Old Testament. Nothing ever changed. It's the case in the New. This is the, the, the God's moral code. God's moral code uh, first revealed in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. It was not a vehicle through which we receive the already and the not yet promise of salvation. It was to expose our need for it. The Ten Commandments, like when we see those, and that's great that they put them in places, that should strike a little bit of in us. All that does is show us how far, how far short we have fallen. Keep God above everything? <laughs> I've never done that a day in my life. You know? And all the other commands. It's not a vehicle for righteousness. Righteousness is only through faith. Number one. Number two. The sort of second refutation. Number two. The consequences of the works-based righteousness error. Number two. Consequences of the works-based righteousness error error. Verses 14 and 15. So Paul exposes the error. Now he he wants us to, I want you to think a little bit about these consequences of a works-based righteousness error from the life of Abraham. Consequences of works-based righteousness error. And under this point number two, there will be three consequences that Paul gives us from the text. Consequences if you believe in righteousness through the law. Look at verse 14, for if those of the law are heirs, those of the law, that means again, those who, you know what, I'm going to be a good enough person through, through my works, through what I do. If that's the case, that you're an heir, you're, in, you're inheriting and receiving the blessings of salvation, faith has been made, look at verse 14, empty, and the promise has been abolished. Okay, first consequence of the works-based righteousness error, faith is made void or empty. That's the first consequence. Faith is made void. And again, when the Bible is here is talking about faith, it's not talking about in sort of the general esoteric cultural way, well, I'm a person of faith and you have faith and that often means nothing. It's just a phrase to make people feel good. But faith here, we'll define it in just a second. But it's polar opposite, direct contrary to works as far as receiving salvation, okay? So anyhow, the first consequence of the works-based righteousness error is that faith is made void. Works-based righteousness is in error because faith would be useless. It'd be empty. It would mean nothing. To put it another way, works-based righteousness and faith-based righteousness are two Totally opposite principles. The idea that you can get to heaven by faith or works are in total contrast. Again, the illustration of surgery. Can I do a liver transplant on myself or do I need a liver transplant? Do I need someone else very competent to do that for me? It's ridiculous. Works-based righteousness, can I do this myself? Or faith-based righteousness, do I have to trust in the works of another, namely Jesus Christ. That's the idea. The contrast between faith and law or works. No, I, I need to put faith in someone else to do that transplant for me. Just like I need to put faith in someone else to give me the blessing of forgiveness and all the package of salvation. Works-based righteousness, it renders faith void because it, it means the whole-souled, S-O-U-L, whole-souled trusting in oneself, and presumption of inherent moral excellence to get into God and have God, uh, get into heaven and have God applaud me and say, good job, you got, you got to heaven. Faith-based righteousness means, or faith, put simply, is the whole-souled throwing of the entirety of self upon Jesus Christ, his life, 
his righteousness, his substitutionary death, his resurrection to receive heaven, to receive the already and not yet-ness of salvation. Faith is the empty hand before God, put righteousness in this hand because I have none on myself. Works is the presumed full-handedness, look at my works, God, and what I did, and supposing God's going to pat you on the back and say, you're amazing. Works is the entire reliance upon self. Faith is the entire heart reliance bowed before Christ, saying, I need you. God's way of salvation has always been by faith. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's the first consequence. The second consequence of the works-based righteousness error is a, a worthless promise. A worthless promise. Namely, God's promise that Paul is bringing up here for the Israelite, the promise to Abraham, it, this would be worthless. Why give a promise, the promise of the gospel, if you're so wonderful that you can climb the moral ladder into heaven? It's a worthless promise. That makes no sense. So faith and works are in total contrast, but so is faith and promise. Which promise? Let's scoot this back a little before Abraham even. Remember in Genesis 3.17, when our great, 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 however many great grandparents, Adam and Eve, they fall, they disobey God, immediately, God is so gracious, immediately as soon as they fall, God gives the promise, Genesis 3.15, it's sometimes called by heady theologians as the proto-evangelion, just means the first gospel, where God says to Eve, look, through you one day is going to come, he says, seed, Someone is going to come through you who's going to crush Satan and, and really fix everything. That's the first time the gospel is preached that we know of. And then the promise to, 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 to Abraham in Genesis 12 is just later fleshing this out. And really, much of redemptive history is just fleshing this out more and more. Isaiah 53, you know, he'll, he'll be pierced through for our transgressions. That's just fleshing out Genesis 3.15 even more. And then Jesus comes. So that's a promise. Now, a question that Paul is sort of... Pre- putting here before the religious Israelite who thinks they're getting to heaven through their works or by way of implication, anyone of us today. You're holding on to Abraham. Why did God give that promise to Abraham? Did God give that promise to Abraham? Because like, wow, Abraham, you're so morally awesome. Look how, look how righteous and godly you are. Did God say that to Abraham? Because he said, Abraham, I've looked at your thought life. I've looked at the way you respond to people when they're not kind to you, and you're just amazing. Here's this promise I'm going to give you. No, that didn't happen. That faith and promise, are, are, they, they go together, but promise and a workspace righteousness, you understand how they're totally in contrast. Like the rest of the world, Abraham had fallen short. He was a sinner. He needed Righteousness. So God gives this promise, even before Abraham to Adam and Eve, that is directly in contrast the idea of works-based righteousness. Adam and Eve, think of it. They're sitting there in the garden. They know they've fallen. They've sinned. And God said in Genesis 2.17, death is the consequence. So they're thinking, what? And then he gives a promise. He doesn't give the promise because they were so godly but in spite of their sin and because God is gracious. And it was the same to Abraham. And that's what Paul is trying to get those who are holding on to works-based righteousness to see. Right? It's like if, it's like if you give a promise to the kids, you start out the day. We're gonna, if you have a bunch of kids, kids, I promise you tonight, we're going to go to Moo's ice cream and, and just go huge. You can just get whatever you want. I promise now, the kids aren't really going to strive for righteousness that day because you already promised that you're going huge at moves for ice cream later. So as they manifest their depraved nature throughout the day, they're not worried that they won't go huge at moves because you gave a promise in the morning 
we're going to get this no matter what. Getting moves did not depend upon their righteousness that day. It depended upon you giving the promise. Works, based righteousness, earning something through your works, or getting it through a promise, you see how they're an opposite. That's the point that, that Paul is making here to the Jews based on Abraham. Look, Abraham was given this promise of the gospel. It's coming no matter what, because it's not based upon anyone's righteousness, but God's integrity, which he is, has a lot of integrity. And so the promise of the gospel is going to come. Therefore, salvation by works is just totally false. Furthermore, let's just throw in, too, the idea, as some are confused about, well, Abraham, you know, he kept the commandments. Other, other places in Scripture make this point. The, the commandments, the Torah, was that given before Abraham was alive or after? Way after. Like several centuries. Abraham is 2100-ish BC. Some say a little later, earlier. We don't know exactly around there. Well, the Torah comes in about 1400 BC. So Abraham didn't even have the law such that he could obey it and that would be a vehicle to righteousness. All right? So the promise nullifies the idea of works-based salvation. A savior is promised. He's coming no matter what. You can't earn your way to heaven. God already set it in stone that there is no righteousness based upon works. Third consequence that, ref- that refutes this works-based righteousness error. Third consequence, only condemnation. There can only be condemnation. Look at verse 15. For the law brings about wrath. That's a very just straightforward, hard-hitting way. Paul's often is teaching this way just to lay it all out. I'm just going to tell you how it is. You, if you're using the commands, that's like your presumed path to walk, to get into heaven. Guess what? The end of that path, let's look down and down to the end of it. The end of that path is only going to be wrath. Whoa, why? Why is that, Paul? Because we all know if you live more than five minutes, my works, which includes our thoughts, our motivations, they don't match up to the perfection of God's standard. And that is the standard, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48. Perfection. Also in Deuteronomy 27, 26, you remember what Moses writes there? He said, cursed, cursed is everyone if you don't keep all the, the commands in this book or this law. Paul picks it up again in Galatians 3.10. Cursed is everyone who does not obey every command. I mean, every single one. So you're cursed. And of course, God being a good, just, upright God, there is a penalty that is required, just like with any law system, law court, civil nation, you need to have penalty for disobeying and violating its laws, so it is with God. There has to be a penalty. We don't make up the rules. And that means wrath. The end of the road for works-based salvation is wrath. The law, if God's wrath is our only hope, if we suppose that our works will waltz us right into heaven. And then there's this sort of weird statement at the end of verse 15. But where there is no law, there is no trespass. Why does he say that? The point is to clarify the previous statement where he says that, you know, those who are of the law, the law brings condemnation or wrath. In other words, if God didn't exist, then his law, his moral standard would not exist. And if his law didn't exist, if no moral standard, then there's no standard for humanity, no right or wrong. And there'd be no penalty or wrath. But since there is a God, and everybody knows it, Paul already proved that, Romans 1.18, up to about verse 24, 23. Since there is a God, there is law, there is moral absolute right and wrong. Our conscience... Romans 2, 14 to 16 testifies to that. Our natural moral awareness, there is wrath and there has to be. Therefore, this presumption of works-based righteousness is in total error. The law only brings about wrath. But in Christ, Romans, 1, Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Throwing anchor 
And Jesus alone for righteousness is the absolute only way to bypass the law's condemnation. All right, so those are the three consequences of the, of the error of works-based righteousness. That faith is worthless, the promise makes no sense, and the condemnation of the law. Now, number three, Paul's third refutation here of works-based righteousness error. The reasons for justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Number three, the reasons for justification by faith alone in Christ alone. This is found in verse 16 and 17. The reasons for justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Look at verse 16. So Paul goes on and says, For this reason it is by faith. It referring to the already and not yet, the spiritual and physical blessings of salvation, salvation that received by faith, by faith alone in Christ alone. And then he gives three reasons. Kind of parallel the last point. He gives three reasons why justification is by faith or faith-based righteousness, righteousness is in Christ alone. Number one is because of the grace of salvation. The first reason And again, Paul is just masterfully just setting up and supporting this argument here. The first reason for justification by faith, because of the grace of salvation. The grace of salvation. So that, it is by, justification by faith alone, so that salvation can be only and all by grace. Look at verse 16. For this reason is by faith, in order that it may be according to grace. It being salvation. Whatever God is, you need to think of him, if we're going to think of him rightly, as a God of grace. Ephesians, uh, Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. What a soul rest and stabilizer that is. The world's false religions have no grace, only demands. Do more. Perform more. The religious treadmill that never ends. Condemnation. God declares salvation is by grace. Grace means blessing like the general term. Blessings given which can never be earned and are not deserved. God, when he architected the plan of salvation in eternity past, made sure that this was going to be of grace. So, Paul is saying, look, the idea and the fact that salvation is by faith, justification is by faith, that upholds the fact that salvation is by grace. Those two go together. They're inseparable. The very definition of grace nullifies any idea that you can get to heaven by your works. Gift given or something earned where I get a high five because you're so great. Romans 11.6 later will go on to say, if it, salvation is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You can't hold the salvation by grace and works at the same time. And we need to lovingly and gently show verses like this to our Roman Catholic friends. As they say, works are essential, but they also say it's by grace. You can't say the same thing. Romans 11.6, this section here, and 4.13 and 17 just destroys that. Paul is arguing for that in verse 16. Salvation by works says, no thank you. I can earn my way to heaven. I don't need grace. Heaven and salvation will be the paycheck that God writes me because I earned it. And I'll strut into heaven and God will say, I mean, that was some moral performance you gave in your life, in your thoughts, your words, your deeds, your inclinations, behind closed doors, how you responded to people when they stepped on your big toes. Wow, that was impressive. You earned this. That's what salvation by works implicationally says, no matter what, we try, how we try to finagle that. But God created salvation and said, no, 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 no. The great verse Salvation by grace through faith, Ephesians 2.8. It is by grace you are saved. Through faith, 
Again, those are just linked. Not by works. It exists not of yourselves, not by works, so that no one can boast. So grace is a, this is how they were. Grace is a gift given. Faith is the empty hand that says, oh yeah, I need that gift of justification of righteousness. That's how they're linked together. Faith ensures it's by grace, not works. If, if salvation is by grace, furthermore, all glory goes to God. And isn't that another way how God works? How is that? Because it's a gift. You don't receive a gift and say, wow, I'm so amazing that I got this. (laughs) It was given to you in spite of you. Even more so with salvation. The system of salvation by grace alone and faith alone, the only way of salvation, ensures that every micro-ounce of salvation you enjoy now spiritually and you will enjoy then in heaven and a new earth and new bodies, that all glory goes to God. And that's part of the point because in Isaiah 42.8, God says, in effect, I'm not sharing my glory with anybody. Not a single ounce of it with anybody. All salvation is to the glory and to the credit and the applause of God. When When you get to heaven... There's not going to be, you know, balloons for you with your name on them and just applause. And it's going to be, heaven's not going to be about you. It's going to be about this great loving God through whom salvation came on the basis of grace. That's the first reason for justification. Second reason, got to speed it up a little bit here. The second reason, reason is the guarantee of salvation. The second reason for justification is the guarantee of salvation. That salvation is a guarantee. Look at verse 16. In order that it may be according to grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the seed. This here, talking about all who follow in the steps, as we saw previously, of Abraham. Abraham, our spiritual father. We put faith in Christ. He's the prototype. That there's a guarantee. That's, that's the thing we want us to focus on for a minute. Guarantee means a certainty with no possibility of, of doubt. 110% this thing's happening. And this is, you see, this is all linked. This is all like fitting together. Promise, faith, grace. Faith ensures that salvation is guaranteed. That it's faith in another. And this is just fantastic news. How does this work together? Because if salvation is by works, how much, if salvation is based upon how godly you perform in your thoughts, words, deeds, nature on a daily basis, how certain are you of your salvation? If you're honest, for me, it's zero. I have a 0.0% chance of certainty and guarantee of salvation. There's no certainty. Any system that teaches works-based righteousness, again, like Roman Catholicism, can never guarantee, sadly, salvation. Why? Because how do you ever know if you've done enough in your thoughts, your words, and deeds to get to heaven? How can you be like, oh, today, okay, I've done enough. I've arrived. This is why Rome, in times like 13th century, 12th century, had to create the system of purgatory and indulgences. Because you can just never know. We fall so short. What a terrifying thing to live with. I have no guarantee. I don't know if I'm going to heaven. But faith, on the other hand, salvation by faith is certain. Why? Because faith links salvation not to my moral performance, but to the person and the righteousness and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It latches on. Faith faith just straps you and unites you to Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 16, you have assurance of salvation. So on your bad days, your days you're struggling, your days where you just see, man, I fall so far 
short. The guarantee of salvation and justification is in no way jeopardized because the assurance and, and really the security of that salvation is not in how much moral money you're putting in your bank every day, though we do need to live godly, obviously, in Romans 6 to 8, we'll deal with that. But it's on Christ. Faith trusts not in ourselves and our moral performance, but in Christ. And third reason for justification by faith, the availability of salvation. The availability of salvation, verse 16 and 17. The availability. Look there to verse 16. The promise will be guaranteed to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. Again, those who have followed in his footsteps by putting faith in Christ. As it's written, a father of many nations I've made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. We'll talk more about that last phrase in verse 17 next week, but just for now, I want us to focus on this availability of salvation. Notice that faith makes justification, salvation, heaven, universally available to all, again, who were simply put faith. doesn't matter if, well, have I come from an Israelite line or did I come from this line or is my ancestry righteous and a bunch of, you know, type A overachievers or is it maybe quite the opposite? Jew, Gentile, internal sinners, outward sinners, those who trusted in, it doesn't matter Faith makes it available simply on the basis of faith, not your works. It's available to all. It will simply come to Jesus. Whether you put faith in Christ at a young age and lived godly your whole life, or five minutes before you died, like the thief on the cross, faith makes salvation available to so many who will put faith in Christ. Jesus invites all to come who will receive salvation. Come to me, he says. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll receive rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus said in John 6, 37, anybody who comes to me, I'm not going to turn you away. But you must come, and you must come on the basis of chucking your works which we have none. They're like filthy rags, Isaiah says. You must come empty-handed, whole-souled, in a bowed spirit of surrendered trust in his majesty, Jesus Christ. Otherwise, there is no heaven. There is no righteousness. There's only condemnation, but it doesn't have to be that way. Whoever puts faith in Jesus Christ, Jew, Gentile, it is available.